0: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's really great to have my buddy, Daniel Lerner on the show. Daniel is co-instructor of NYU's The Science of Happiness course and co-author of the new book, You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life. Daniel, it's really exciting to chat with you today.
2: Oh, man, it's great to be here. Thank you
1: so much for having me. We have so much that we can talk about. Man, I want to start by kind of talking about your prior career, you know? <laughs> now you teach this really popular course at NYU. You go around the world giving these great talks. You inspire people. You help people. But you were actually a talent agent for a while in the music, classical music industry. Is that right?
2: I was. Uh, I was. Music was really my life for the first 30 years of it. My parents were both professional musicians. My father was in the Pittsburgh Symphony. And my mother was an opera singer, as I believe you may know. I knew your mother. <laughs> Another <laughs> right.
1: very inspirational. I know where you get the inspirational aspect of yourself.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I mean, for everyone out there, Scott, my mom was uh, head of the voice department at Carnegie Mellon when Scott arrived. So they formed a great bond before Scott and I got a chance to meet. But yeah, right out of college, I went into the music business. I was fascinated by not only music, but really musicians. And I was fascinated by those musicians who were realizing real excellence on stage, who were pursuing those things about which they were passionate, who were communicating with the world through that medium. And so I spent almost, no, no, I spent 10 full years in that business, first as an agent representing a talent, mostly young opera singers, and then in marketing, marketing and consulting, really, for all areas of the classical music business. So it was terrific. It was a wonderful opportunity to help young performers really be their best. Mm,
1: Yeah. So you saw a lot during that time period, sort of what it takes to develop your full being, your full expression. You probably saw lots of blocks in people, right? Lots of things that did you ever talk to some of the people you're representing and say, you know, I think this might be blocking you up or this anxiety or fear
2: might be blocking you up. Was that ever a part of your relationship with any of your clients? You know, it's a great question. And I, I think that the way that I went about management was really helping them. Well, let I mean, let me not say helping, let me say working with them to maximize uh, both their experience on stage and their experience off stage. And that's not necessarily how agents tend to go about it. Often it's, how do we get, how do we help you be your very best on stage? And as my experience progressed over the years, I realized that I was really seeing two very distinctive types of artists. One was the artist who was thriving on stage, great career, things were going well. They were learning and maturing and developing their level of expertise and performance. And that artist would also have a really rich, fulfilling life often. Offstage, they would have a family or they would have a great group of friends. They would have a spiritual pursuit. They would have hobbies. They would have things that were really important to them away from the stage. But I'd also see another kind of client artist. And that was the one who was equally successful on stage, who was traveling the world and singing big roles and by definition successful in their pursuits. But they were distinctly unhappy away from the stage. I would get phone calls at three in the morning from people saying, I'm incredibly unhappy. I'm depressed, and why do I do this? And you know, that's really what drove me to pursue where I am now, which is what's happening. But psychologically, what's allowing one person to be successful on stage and off, and the other person to be successful on stage but not off? Mm. I remember a really poignant story
1: you told me, and about uh, someone who called you unexpectedly during the middle of their performance.
2: Was it at Carnegie Hall? Yeah. or something, or the or the Met. Exactly. It was, a, it was Carnegie Hall. It was Carnegie. Yes, I got a phone call. It was a Saturday night. I got a phone call, and I remember it was 9.15. I remember looking at my watch, and to make a long story short, would you like the long version or the short version? Uh, let's go with the short version. All right. Make a long story short, I got a phone call from a very, very well-known musician who I had never met, but whose name I knew very, very well. And they said, it's intermission for me. I've been striving to be a success in this business since I was a kid, since I remember singing when I was really young. And I always had the measure of my success being when I sing a solo concert at Carnegie Hall. I mean, it almost sounds like a joke, but it's not, right? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? So this person had pushed and studied and focused on this being their moment of success. And they walked off the stage at intermission doing their very first solo concert at Carnegie Hall and realized they were miserable. Life wasn't going very well. They weren't a very good partner to their partner. They weren't good friend. They weren't happy even performing anymore. And so their agent had given them my number. About this point, I was in coaching and said, maybe you should give them a call. And sure enough, they said, yeah, here I am. What do I do now? So, you know, it was incredibly difficult to hear someone who had worked so hard and yet was so unhappy. And I'm afraid that's what happens far too often. You know, the thing is, certainly I saw it in the music business a lot, but it is hardly exclusive to that field. You're going to find it in every field. And that's what's been so fascinating about doing this kind of work and meeting people in sports and music and law and medicine, people who are doing a huge variety of things who are successful, but not necessarily
1: happy. Yeah, it's so great that you're able to leverage those experiences and apply
2: it to helping everyone. Everyone's a big term, I'm shooting for it, (laughs) but everyone we possibly can. In a, way, in a way, I have to say I think that they speak to each. The experiences speak to each other, which is to say, if I'm working with someone who's very well known and successful on a kind of a worldwide stage, that can grab the attention of people who might not be there, but but yet or ever or are even striving for that level of recognition. But also working with folks who are not well known, who are people you walk by in the street and wouldn't think of twice, who are successful in their own way, in their field. I think that but not well-known, that, that helps the folks who are well-known to say, look, we're all human beings. We're all striving to live a fulfilling or a thriving life. The way that you, the path you set yourself on might find your name in lights, and you, it might not, but we're still looking for essentially the same thing, which is living a life that is uh, fulfilling. Yeah, I like that. I like <laughs> fulfilling. <laughs> I think I prefer fulfilling over happy. Any day, and yeah. you know, and that's such a good point. And you and I have talked about that quite a bit. Yeah. You know, happy is a wonderful thing. I would presume that everyone wants to be happy. Let's say everyone wants positive emotions, just to be more specific about it. But that's not hardly the only thing, right? Happy right. is one element of many, many, many factors that we want in our life. We want to be engaged. We want to have good relationships. We want to have meaning. We want to be accomplished. We want there's so many things. So yeah, that's one part of it, you know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So, tell me what the cheesiest line of the semester is oh. that you tell your students. All right. So, you know, it's a, it's a great transition because when we talk about the various factors that come into play when we're striving to live a fulfilling life, I will say, look, and I will preface it exactly as you just said it. I, I said, look, this is the cheesiest line that I will give you all semester, I promise. And then I tell them that they are all beautiful little snowflakes and they all groan as they should, because it's an incredibly cheesy line. Uh, But the idea is really, if you try to be, it's great to have role models. But if you try to be exactly who those people are, it's not going to work for you. You're different than they are. In fact, you're different from the person sitting to your right and sitting to your left. And I'll have them look around, but there are 500 people in our class, 500 students in our class and look around and say, none of you are exactly alike. You know, the factors that come into play when we're talking about thriving, as we mentioned before, positive emotions, relationships, meaning, purpose, engagement, all these different, and then many, many more. I see kind of like a mixing board for a music engineer, where some people want a little more bass, some people want a little more treble, you know, and there are all these little dials, and you need to have some in, in each measurement. You know, you, have, you need to have a little sound in some, maybe you want more sound in some areas, but they're almost never exactly the same as the person around you. The challenging part is figuring out really what works for you and bringing that together so that it, it sounds, as to extend the analogy, the metaphor, that sounds as beautiful as it can for you. I bet the students really resonate with that. You know, they seem to. I, I, here's the thing with college students. You know very well because, you know, you, you've taught in undergrads uh, longer than I have, I believe. For many of them, they've gone through a machine. You know, it's, and it's a very efficient machine of school, of high school, said, being told, when you do X, you'll be successful. Often, it's get the grade and successful. Get into this school, you'll be successful. Do these extracurriculars if you want to go to this school, you'll be successful. And it puts them into a bit of a box. Now, structure is not a bad thing, per se, but assuming that everyone is going to thrive within the same structure, that might not be as healthy. So, I think to have the students to help them understand that they don't have to live inside of that structure that's been given to them their whole lives. And in many cases, it's parents who are saying, this is a field you should go into, right? Because either I did, you know, as your parent, or because it's a, it offers you security and every parent wants their kid to be secure. Or they see it as something their kid will be happy with. And so their student won't necessarily try their own path. They won't understand, that they won't dare to go differently. And that, I think, is the pathway to a pathway to really fr- to frustration and regret down the road. Absolutely. And by the way, Scott, just just to say, I mean, things in class. If, if I ask students who here, or Alan, or i my colleague, and I ask students who here has been stressed out in the past month, people raise their hands. And it's I don't. It's not for us to know. I want them to raise their hands because they start to look around and realize, oh my gosh, like. Everyone around me is raising their hand. I'm not the only one who's been stressed out. And then, I, then we can turn to them and say, actually 90% of you have reported that you felt overwhelmed in college in the past year. 45% of you, and this is numbers from the Gallup poll in 2015, 45% of you have, have said that you felt sad in college over the course of the past year. 33% of you have felt that have experienced work debilitating depression. So I'm, we're not gonna ask the depression question in class. That's a bit too personal. But to ask about overwhelm or even ask about sadness and to look around and see anywhere from half to 90 percent of their peers raising their hand, I think that really helps them understand they're not alone. And then we can move forward and go, look, snowflakes, let's figure out what's going to work for you, because apparently whatever you're doing can either be tweaked or be overhauled or somewhere in between. And given that license, I think I'd like to think helps them really explore their undergraduate experience in a way that allows them to take advantage of wonderful opportunities that are there. Yeah. There's this
1: expression at Penn called Penn Face, where students feel as though they have to put up this veil of strength, you know, right. or courage, and that when they're all really going through the same thing. And, you know, it's really, I think that's a really important point, you know, to get these students understanding that there's a lot of similar challenges they go through. Can you tell me some challenges you see on college campuses today?
2: Oh, gosh. I think I think a lot of students, well, you, you bring up the Penface Face idea. Have you heard of that Uh, before? I've not heard that phrase particularly, but it doesn't surprise me. I'm sure that every campus has something. Many campuses, I would imagine, have something akin to that. Some schools probably more so than others, but I think it runs the gamut. A lot of it's perfectionism. I mean, if straight A's is what got them into college and straight A's is clearly what's going to help to be successful at the next level. And so they start to strive for grades rather than experiences, for winning rather than learning. And that can be a very slippery slope, right? Because it takes the joy out of it. It can often take the joy out of it, I should say. And it can often take the engagement out of it. What about just experiencing those things that you're interested in? Then you might not be as good as, quote unquote, other people around you, but are willing to fall on your face and fail a little bit. I think that's so key, you know, not fail, but, but just to know that you're learning your own way. And that's okay. So I think the grade bit is really challenging. I would say the pressure to, Pressure to succeed very early on in their post-college careers hits a lot of students before they even walk onto campus. That's to say, look, I'm 45 years old. And when I graduated from school, one of my best friends was in the tech sector back when tech sector was booming. And I remember him saying, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. And I thought, whoa, that's amazing. A million dollars by the time you're 30. First of all, I was in classical music, so that wasn't happening for me. But second of all, that's just a lot of money for a young person. Now, if you don't make a million dollars by the time you're 23, you're like a failure and there's no way to come back from that. Oh, no. Am I a failure? <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, you let me know. When you get to 23, you let me know. How, how you, okay, I'll let you. know. <laughs> but I think they see that too often. And so they start to set goals that don't necessarily align with their well-being or happiness. And I'd say, you know, and maybe the third, I'll say the third, but let me preface it by saying it's the question I get asked most often that I think might be the biggest challenge our students who come up and say, I'm interested in these four things, any four topics, how do I choose? And my standard answer, and I can talk more about this if you'd like, but my standard answer is why do you have to choose? Yeah, I like that. I like right? that. You're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Like, you're interested in these four things. Maybe what the focus should be is how can I make each of them a part of my life in some capacity so that I can continue to enjoy things that I find engaging and follow that path. And that's a tricky one because you don't get a whole lot of parental or societal support around that. But I do believe that in many ways, and we can, whether we're looking at studies of passion or an array of other domains, pursuing those things that engage you, and that's an essential part of the path to living a, a good life. Yeah. So when you're being structured out of that, it's an early path to potentially unhappiness or unfulfillment and struggling. And and look, this is the other thing, by the way, that, that I'll tell my students early in the semester is I'll tell them the story of the clients that I've had anonymously. And what I'll say is these people will call me when they're 35 years old and they're super successful and they're not happy. I get you when you're 18 and 19 and 20. So the routines and habits that they've developed that have helped them be successful on but unsuccessful off, stage, field, classroom, we can work on this right now. Let's figure out what works for you. So you don't call me when you're 35 unless you're going to share really good news with me about how awesome things are, or that you want to tinker with some things and get them better. But we have the chance now to help you develop habits and routines that can get you both great at what you do and happy in your life. Ooh,
1: I like both those things. Right? I know. It, it, right? Well, know. in combination.
2: That's exactly mm.
1: it. You know, it shouldn't be an either or proposition, right? Yeah, they feed off each other, right? In yeah. dynamic ways. Well, talk a little about the importance of positive relationships, not just from friends, but what about from mentors, professors? Mentors are huge, right?
2: So if you go back to a study, I believe it was either a Gallup study or a Purdue study a couple of years ago, when they asked college graduates who had been out of school between five and 10 years, and who had been assessed as thriving in their lives, what the key factors were during their undergraduate experience that allowed them to thrive years later, the top two answers were both about mentors or professors. That is to say, and I'm going to get this wording, and us paraphrase here, I had a professor who cared about me as a person, and the other question was I had a mentor who supported my interests. So. Friends are amazing, and they're incredibly important, and I've never taken anything away from them. They're there for the great times, to celebrate them. They're there for the tough times, to be able to have a a head or an ear, a shoulder shoulder or an ear. But professors and mentors are profoundly important. Not only do they help you set the goals that will allow you to grow and give you the support and the knowledge and the experience that will help you be efficient in your growth, but they kind of give you the societal thumbs up. Like yeah, I'm I'm here. I'm supporting you. I'm 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 here for you. So let's do it. And I think that level of confidence is key. In fact, Richard Light at Harvard, when the freshmen first come in to his classroom, will ask the question again, paraphrasing, "What's your job here uh, this first semester at Harvard?" And they'll guess and guess and guess, and no one ever gets it until he's telling, you, "No, you're all wrong. Your job here is to find a mentor or a professor that you really align with, because that's so important to your ability to thrive now and." down the line. Wow. What a complete reframing of the point of why they're there. Yeah, exactly. Wow. I mean, look, I would be hard-pressed to think of anyone who exemplifies it better than you. Oh, stop it. Oh, no, seriously. I mean, think about all the wonderful mentors. I was super blessed with amazing mentors in music and in academia and other pursuits. But, like, your arc is, like, amazing mentor, amazing professor, amazing mentor. And I'd be curious to know how that affected you? Yeah, I feel like I am
1: like a professional mentor seeker. That's for sure. I will admit that. Yeah, I mean, I really admire lots of people and I want to learn from them. And I have yeah, been blessed that they've wanted to teach me. There is great value in reaching out to and not being shy to do so. You find that people are often happy to help someone who is earnestly, you know, wanting to improve themselves in a similar direction
2: as themselves. Yeah, so I think that and you put your finger on it in a lot of ways, often someone will see themselves, their younger selves in you. And there's a wonderful thing about being able to give back to others. None, none of our paths are easy, but in a way that can really help make the most of someone's pursuits. Oh, I couldn't have said that better. Yeah. So, oh, yes, you could have. <laughs> <laughs> I think people listening to this episode are going to be like, wow, they are actually friends. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is true. If you're listening and you're thinking we're actually friends, we are absolutely, totally friends. It's true. Yeah. yeah. But I count myself very, very lucky to have Scott as a friend. He's a wonderful guy. Thank wonderful you. Wonderful friend. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise.
1: <laughs> yeah. So can we move on for a second to character strengths? You know, you talked about kind of the intersection of happiness and strengths. Can you unpack a little more of what are some of these potential strengths that we could be identifying in college students? We as professors, you know? Sure,
2: sure, sure. You know, as we said before, because we have this structure and we see so many students come to our classroom, it's easy to put on blinders and look for very specific attributes that indicate to us, okay, they have a talent for this, okay, they have a talent maybe for something else, but they're here for another reason, okay, and like be able to sort of start categorizing and thinking about who's going to thrive in here and how and who might not thrive quite as well as richly, let's say, yeah. and if that is what we're doing, we're leaving out certain factors that can help the students that we, that we work with, and I'd say even the people that we have the opportunity to interact with outside of the classroom, and that would be, among many other elements, character strengths. What are our strengths of character? What are those values in life that we have that help us to thrive? So if you look at, and there are, there are a number of different assessments, so best known might be StrengthsFinder. Gala, oh, yeah. but the VIA, you know, it's I see it a lot in businesses, and I think it's it's terrific, particularly for the workplace. But if you're talking about life overall, if you're talking about being in a classroom or not, or maybe the last classroom experience was 50 years ago, the idea of pursuing strengths of character can be particularly rich and helpful. Those strengths of character, you can find an assessment at VIA, Victor. What is it, Victor Indigo Alpha?
1: Well, that's what um, VIA stands for.
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered what it stood for. No, I'm joking. <laughs> values in action, right? <laughs> values in action, exactly. So if you go to the values in action website, you can get a free assessment there. And what it is, is, it's not a measurement of how good you are, how bad you are. It's not a measurement of how smart you are or what, what your IQ is. It's just a measure of those strengths with which you thrive. So for example, a strength, some strengths in those 24 are bravery. They are honesty. They are... Love and capacity to be loved. They are beauty, appreciation of beauty and mastery. They are justice. They are zest for life. And what we find is that people who are able to incorporate their strengths into their pursuits are far more likely to be engaged in those pursuits, whether they're in the classroom or in the workplace. Gallup did a poll of strengths a number of years ago and found that those organizations that help people to use their strengths at work so those employees have a 73% chance of being engaged. Wow, and that's a huge effect. It's huge, especially when you think about the organizations that emphasize shoring up weaknesses over using your strengths. And those organizations, those people have a 9% chance of being engaged in the workplace. Really? Yeah.
1: That's a, a very. It's quite striking because since we're throwing out all these statistics, I'm going to make up a statistic. Probably 90 just- <laughs> Probably no, You just did so I can. Probably 90% of businesses focus on the negative aspects and just trying to get rid of the negative as opposed to building on the strengths, probably. So that that's, it has huge implications. Now, I just made up that 90%, but that's just my gut is telling me.
2: That sounds about right to me. I think your gut is spot on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, think about some of the great management gurus. Peter Drucker said that the greatest companies or teams are made up of the constellation of strengths. Now he clearly wasn't referring to to the VIA, the is in action, or nor was he referring to StrengthsFinder, because this is well before either of those were available to us. But he saw the people who worked in their strengths and formed a team where people not only brought them together but appreciated the other people's strengths, because that's the that's that's the tough part. If your strength, and I think the e- maybe one of the easy ways to do it, and this is not a strength thing, but if you're an extrovert and I'm an introvert, and you're sitting there thinking. Why is this guy never talk? I was supposed to thinking, I wonder what he's processing right now because he's listening really, really well. And after this meeting's done, I'm going to ask him or her what he heard because I'm telling you something, he's going to hear a lot more than I am because all I think about is what to say next. Unless you get that kind of appreciation, you're not really realizing the benefits of that constellation of strengths. So it happens all the time in college campuses, clearly. People thinking, I actually just want to hang out with people who are like me or I appreciate this person's strengths, whether they know it or not, because they're like my strengths, as opposed to thinking, how do I put this team together and appreciate other people's strengths? You know, before that even happens, I just say to a student, figure out what your strengths are, go to the VIA website, take the assessment. And when you find out that your strength is, say, bravery, figure out a a way to use it in a new way every day. Maybe it means asking a question in class that you're a little nervous to ask, That doesn't seem quite right, but you're going to be brave enough to ask that question. Maybe bravery looks to you like writing a paper that's a little outside of the box, pushing that boundary a little bit, because for you, that's how you express bravery. For other people, it might be going on a political march or joining a political cause. It might be something like that. For others, it might be a ropes course. Who knows? But the idea is if you're able to use it, maybe it's asking somebody out that you're nervous to ask out. You know, when you express that bravery, you're far more likely to, well, at least what Marty Seligman will say is, was it Marty, I think you said, no, I'm sorry, it was Alice Lindley who said, experience what it is to be the real you. Well, oh. I really like that quote. I really like that quote you just said. Yeah, and it, it really has me thinking a lot. Let me give you one quick strength just because it might be a fun story. So just as an example, one other example of how students can use strengths. I had a, um, a student a couple years ago. She had just finished her tour of duty in the Navy. And she was assessed for her strengths. And she had her boyfriend get his strengths assessed as well. And so for his birthday, she did a strengths date where one of his strengths was appreciation of beauty and mastery. So she did a date where she took him to a really lovely place for breakfast. She went for a really nice walk in the park. She took him to the Met Museum afterwards. And then they sat on the roof and watched the sunset. He was like, this was the best date I ever had. So being able to structure an experience like that for a friend or for a partner is a really wonderful gift. And she said it was the best date she'd ever had too, because she just got to see him so wonderfully, wonderfully engaged.
1: Wow. So maybe on first dates, people should be giving each other the via. Hey, you know, you could do a lot worse,
2: right? You could do a lot worse than worrying about like your hair.
1: (laughs) It's a really good point. I spend way too much time worrying about my hair. you have magnificent hair. Uh, Because I spend so much time worrying <laughs> about my hair, hours and hours.
2: Yeah, um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Dan. So let me ask you about willpower. I think that this is an important topic you cover in your book and something that kind of in a lot of ways is what enables our character. You know, we may have the potentiality for certain character strengths, but our lack of willpower might get in the way of that, right? Absolutely. No so question about it do you see that among college students that the willpower plays
2: a role in their success? yeah I'd say I, I see among everybody that I've worked with both as a coach and as, a, as an instructor, but you know in some cases it, it is a key factor in success you know the capacity to do do what you know is best for you in the long term and forego what you want in the short term that would be key for everyone from great athletes to great world leaders, to great musicians, to great academics, to great mothers, to great fathers. Self-control actually is one of the predictors for a healthy child. I'm sorry, self-control for the parent is one of the great predictors for for a healthy child because that parent can do what is right for their child. When it comes to students on campus, absolutely. And I think there are a number of factors that come in. One of the greatest factors, and when we teach this class, we teach it as a kind of a part one, part two class, is choice. That's to say, College students have more choice, the vast majority, 99, I'm making this number up, but 99 point plus percentage of college students have more choice the second they step foot on campus than they ever have in their entire lives, right? When they were in high school, we were all in high school, we were told what class to go to, when to be there, what was due, where we were eating, who we were eating with, and you wake up the next morning because you have to wake up at a certain time, you know where your breakfast is, right? So on and so forth. You get to college, you don't know where your dorm is. You don't know what classes you're going to take. You don't know what time those classes are. You don't know who you're going to have breakfast with. You don't even know who you're going to be sleeping with that first night. And I'm talking clearly about roommates, but you have all of these choices that you never had. Here's the thing with willpower willpower is depleted as the more choices you make. So if you wake up in the morning in high school, you get down to the table and there's a bowl of cereal sitting there, you have not just made the choice between bagel cereal, eggs, pancakes, waffles. So you haven't depleted your willpower. When you go to high school, because you jump on the bus, you walk the same path every day. It's not like, am I gonna take the subway today? Am I gonna go with certain friends? Am I even gonna go to class? Because if I don't, no one's gonna know. So you haven't necessarily depleted your willpower in high school, but in college, by the time it's 10 a.m., providing you've decided not to hit the snooze button 15 times, your willpower is depleted. And for a reference point, and and by the way, you're in college, you're like, what am I going to wear? I have to look like super fly because who knows who I'm going to run into today. Maybe I'm going to want to you know, see that you know, girl in my science of happiness class or that guy in my, my chem class, and I have to look good. This is the reason why, one of the reasons why Mark Zuckerberg always wears the same hoodie, or at least he has a billion of them, why Steve Jobs always wore the same thing, why Albert Einstein wore the same thing, because they don't want to have to make the choices. Thus, they save their willpower for other things, allowing them to focus. So for college students and willpower, yeah, it gets drained super fast because it's they hit with all these choices, and by the time mid afternoon hits, evening hits, the habits, the bad habits kick in. We we, re- we rarely make bad decisions in the morning like we do in the evening. Our ability to work through and not uh, procrastinate, for example, grows in the afternoon and evening as well. We eat less healthy in the afternoon and evening, because our willpower is drained. So. For college students, yeah, it's a huge factor that they don't think about very often. I'd say there are a couple of ways to – there's a couple of shortcuts that they can build in to preserve that willpower and to save it for when they really need it the most. That's a great lesson if you can impart that on on the students. Imparting and having them actually take advantage of it are two different things. But here's the thing about the course, and I I imagine you found this too, teaching the science of happiness. Some students are going to look at it and go, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I totally have to take advantage of that. And other students are going to go, whatever, dude. <laughs> you know, but hopefully, they'll look at the character strengths class and go, oh, I'm going to try that in my next day. Or in the optimism class and go, all right, how am I going to explain the next bad things that happens to me so that I can maybe have a different style of dealing with bad things? You know, the hopes is that whether it's with the class, with the course, I should say, or the, or the book, that people will find something. The snowflakes will find the one that's right for them. Maybe it's one thing, two things, an action, they can take a habit, they can create three things, four things. But I seriously doubt it's going to be all of them. So hopefully, if willpower works for you, wonderful. And if it doesn't, you'll find something else. Yeah. Willpower
1: doesn't work so well for me. Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) It's not one of my character strengths because uh, I actually find it gets in the way of creativity, which is one of my character strengths and curiosity. Ah, interesting. Yeah. I think if you have too much willpower, you're going to like kind of ignore the seemingly irrelevant and miss out on the beautiful connections. But anyway, I'm starting to sound a little hippie-ish, so I'll stop.
2: Well, hey, and I wonder about that. Think about it. What if you're totally committed to keeping the blinders off? You know, be like, how am I not going to allow myself to get the blinders on? You know, how am I going to constantly allow myself to stay open to experience? That takes willpower too. Because then for a lot of folks, it's easier just to be like, hey, I'm going to, Put my head, nose to the grindstone, get the good grade, not worry about, you know, creative schmeative. Sh- sh- that's for the hippies. Like, that takes some, that says, takes some self-control. You know, that's actually a really
1: good point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rethink that. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between harmonious and obsessive passion?
2: Oh, look who's asking me that question. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> passion himself. You know what you should do? If you're out there listening, you should uh, Google Scott Bray Kaufman articles on passion. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're, you're you're too nice. You're too nice. I know that you have a lot of great stuff to say about it. So The things I'm interested in most are development of excellence and expertise in our life and how we can do so in a healthy way. And the study of passion, which have, has really been vibrant for the last like, 25 years, particularly the University of Montreal, I think for me is one of the Key elements when it comes to bringing together well being and excellence. The thing about passion is, Bob Ballarand, who's been doing so much of this research, and his colleagues, have really found there are two very distinctive pathways to pursue a passion. Now, a passion can be anything, right? a passion can promote almost anything. I believe that they, when he pulled 535 students at the University of Montreal, they came up with a list of well over 100 passions. Because at first, the students were saying, well, I don't know if I have a passion. When they realized that a passion is a strong desire to do something, and to do something at least eight and a half hours a week, they were like, wait, does that include having conversations with friends? Does that include gardening? Does that include cooking? Does that include skateboarding? It does. So all of a sudden, these passions can can be, to your earlier point, they can be so diverse that we may have them and not even know it. But the thing about passions that are so essential to bringing together well-being and excellence is that these two roads are very distinctive. One is harmonious and one is what is termed obsessive. And the harmonious attributes of harmonious include intrinsic drivers. So you're doing something because you love it. It's super easy. I love looking at kids because they get up when they're five years old and they're like, I want to play with Legos. Like that's usually an intrinsic motivation. They get up. The first thing I want to do is play with Legos. First thing I want to do is play in the sandbox. First thing I want to do is finger paint. First thing I want to do is play piano. First thing I want to do is go out and play a sport. So a harmonious passion, we can look at our kids and be like, yes, it's something you wake up looking forward to. An obsessive passion is different in that it's often driven by external circumstances. You do it because your parents want you to do it. You do it because the money's really good. You do it because of the status it gives you in your culture. And those drivers can lead towards a very different passion. That is far less healthy. So, when we look at harmonious passions, we find that the results are that people tend to have higher levels of positive emotion. They can, they're more engaged. They can focus. They have better memory, term of, that's the wrong way to put it, but they retain more of the information when it's harmonious. So, definition there are all, of memory. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, which is the definition of memory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, there are all these wonderful benefits. But when you look at the folks who are obsessively passionate, they have much higher levels of negative emotion. Even you know when they're not only when they're doing the pursuit that they're passionate about, right. but for the rest of their day. So, for example, we looked at like the Ballerand looked at high school and college basketball players, assess them for a harmonious or or a obsessive passion. And those college basketball players who are harmonious really enjoyed their practice, but then the rest of the day was better too. Those who are obsessive didn't enjoy practice, and the days they had practiced, the rest of their day was worse. So it's not just about the one thing. It's about everything in your life. So when we pursue a harmonious passion we have this opportunity not only to engage and do better, but to be happier, to be better friends, to have more relationships, while well, when it's obsessive, it tends to bring us down. And there's a huge rate of burnout when it comes to obsessive passions. Far, 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 far greater than harmonious passions. But here's the bottom line, and this is what a lot of people uh, will ask when we talk about this is, but don't you need to be obsessively passionate to really be great, quote unquote great, to be the best? And what we're finding is for the most part, with very few exceptions, the studies seem to show that it's not the case, that both types of passion lead to very, very high levels of performance, but only one of them, that's harmonious, also leads to fulfilling life. Yeah.
1: Dan, just to clarify something. Between people, when you measure harmonious and obsessive between people, you can look at differences. But within a person, there, there's no profile of a person who is 0% obsessively passionate, right? I mean, it's every great. single one of us has a mix of the
2: two. And it's all about getting the gears, the relative ratio, right? You're totally spot on. And it's such an important point to know that just like so many things in our life, very few of us are black or white in anything. And passion is exactly the same way. So one may recognize Some obsessive passion as part of their passion, some characteristics of of the obsessive aspect. But that can be helpful to be able to recognize both and know well, where am I being obsessive? Is it healthy for me? Can I shift a little bit more towards the harmonious? How's that really working out for me as the, again, the snowflake that I am? The strength to be unique, to pursue your own path. It's actually, you know, that's such an interesting one too, Scott. When you think about people who are admired on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. One can say that we have unique people, or snowflakes, really on both sides. You know, if you look at someone like Teddy Roosevelt, you know, one of the things I love about Roosevelt comes to uniqueness is that he wasn't just a president. He was a rough rider soldier. He was an environmentalist, started the National Park System. He was a hard-nosed, rough-and-tumble guy who loved rough sports, you know, football, boxing, those kind of things. He's also a very, 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 very sick kid when he was young. His asthma was so bad he couldn't leave the house, couldn't have the window open. So here's this guy who had all these different things going. He was completely unique. We look at someone like Maya Angelou, very similar. So many different things happening, completely unique human being. There's a wonderful clip of Bruce Lee talking about how he discusses his pursuit of martial arts and how martial arts to him is fully expressing himself. And at a certain point he just, the words don't do him justice anymore. But it's clear that he has pursued things in a different way different than everyone else has. So, yes, I use Snowflake in a very positive way to say, you know, we are unique people, whether you're Ronald Reagan (laughs) or you are Barack Obama. These are incredibly unique folks who have taken very brave steps that other people wouldn't have.
1: Do you encourage any of your students to be unique but also to be conscious of others? Uh, Is just being unique the most,
2: the only important thing? Well, fortunately, one of, you know, there are a number of topics that we discuss in the course, in the book. And maybe at the center of that is uh, meaning when it comes to essential drivers for thriving. And meaning, it can be defined many ways, but one of which is to feel that you are a part of something greater than yourself. You know, Adam Grant, one of your colleagues at Penn, uh, has talked about how we cultivate meaning. And certain ways include questions such as, how does your work help the world be a better place? How does your work help other people around you? And when people consider those questions in relation to their work, whether it's firefighting or being a parent or being an academician, we tend to get a sense that other people matter. (laughs) How we affect other people matter. How we take care of people around us matter. Our place in the community matters. Uh, and not just our place, but how we contribute to the community matters. So is it okay just to be unique? Well, I mean, but the question of how am I helping the world be a better place? Yeah, That's important. And that starts to connect you to others. So no, it's not just about being unique. There are many factors come in to play. Great. Thanks, yeah.
1: Dan. And I love all the factors that you talk about in combination in your book. And I wish you all the best with the book and hope that you can continue
2: inspiring on today's youth. Thank you very much. Hey, it's, it's a tremendous gift to be able to work with all these students every year. Heck, you know what? Let me take that back. It's a tremendous gift to be able to work with one student. The fact that I get to work with any students at all is really fortunate. And now I have to thank you for letting me share what we're doing with all your listeners because, hey, as I always say, if you change one person for the better, if you help them thrive today, then we've done our work, done our job. <laughs> Thanks again, anyway, Well, you're, you're doing great things, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Dan. Thanks
1: for listening to The Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com.
0: 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health.